Grab your popcorn and snacks. Find a comfy spot, take a seat or lie down, and let me transport you to a place of fantasy, ghost stories, ancient legends, odd creatures, alien encounters, and other magical topics. You may even decide to join the conversation. From faraway lands to your own backyard, with a small dash of pixie dust, turn out the lights and open your minds. The journey is about to begin. Hey, welcome everybody to California Haunts Radio. Monday, it's raining here. I told Jesse the weather would change. It was all nice. I know you guys on the East Coast, you were all jealous and all that, but it didn't last. But just to make you a little more jealous is we're going back to like 70 to 80 degrees tomorrow. But it it rained last night and today, and it rained pretty hard. We had hail and thunderstorms and all that good stuff out here in sunny California. Welcome to the show. My name is Charlotte. I'm going to be your host for the next hour. I am also the owner of the California Haunts Paranormal Investigation Team based out of Sacramento, but we have people up and down the state of California, Oregon, Washington, Nevada, and Hawaii. So if you need anything as far as paranormal investigating going, look us up. As you can see by the ticker at the bottom, uh, we are a nonprofit team, so we don't charge for our services. So we, you know, we're just primarily here to help you and educate you about the paranormal. But as I said, as we are nonprofit, everything comes out of my pocket. So if during the show or you like the show so much, you feel like you want to donate a little bit to keep us on the air and keep, and keep the group and some really cool equipment and stuff for investigations, you can do it at paypal.me at California Haunts. Or if you're uncomfortable with PayPal, you can do that at Venmo and just type in California Haunts. I want to thank everybody for coming out Saturday night. We had a sold out event and everybody had a blast right up until 930 when it got really cold out there. But uh a lot of things happened to each group. We divided into three groups, and each group had something happen to them, you know, to the to the group as a whole, or individual people had things happen, like hearing footsteps and being touched in the cemetery and things like that. I'm going to have a short video later on tonight that I'll be putting up on our meetup, so so you guys can check it out. I'm also going to post it on Facebook so people can check it out. But uh, it was a great event, and uh, I was really glad to meet Jennifer and, and Heather and different people that. Uh, I see all the time on here, and I see I see at our at different meetup events, our classes. So it was really fun. Anyway, our guest tonight is Mr. Ron Felber. He wrote a book that I read back in 2014 called The Mojave Incident. Now, I have read, you know, like I said, I've been doing my blog talk show for 15, 16 years before I started doing this, this show, before I started doing the show in this format. And I have talked. To Betty and Bar, you know, to uh, people related to Betty and Barney Hill. I've talked to Travis Walton. I've talked to a lot of people about their encounters with aliens. And this book just blew me away. And I think what you know what what really scared me was what the the abduction itself was scary, but what happened after the abduction is what scared me, because I don't sleep good at night anyway, and. Frequently, I wake up with bruises on my arms and in my legs and stuff, and I can't explain where the bruises came from. So, yeah, I remember I've been talking about this for a while, about questioning whether we're actually hunting ghosts or whether we might be hunting aliens. It's because of this book. This is what made me question everything. So I'm really excited to have Ron on because I've been dying, literally dying to talk to him about this book that he wrote and the people involved, you know, in, in the incident. So without further ado, oh yes, one more thing. So I keep forgetting. If you guys are watching on YouTube, please subscribe. 
There's a little ghost in the bottom right-hand corner with a magnifying glass and a Sherlock Holmes hat. We're looking for subscribers. I think we need two subscribers to hit 260 this time. So please subscribe. The more the merrier. And even if you hate the show, share it with someone you despise. Give it to them as punishment. You think my show's crap. But subscribe, subscribe, subscribe. Okay? All right. Without further ado, let me bring Ron in. Hello, sir. Good to see you. Good to see you. I am a huge admirer of you. I've, like I said, I've never read a, you know, abduction book that scared me as much as this one. Well, it's a very unique story in many ways. And um, even from my standpoint, you know, I, I sort of stumbled upon this. It wasn't like I was going out looking for a story like this, which in a way makes it more credible because, um, you know, I came upon it through a friend who actually worked for me. Uh, I was running a company at the time and he was a, a sales person in uh, La Mirada, California. And um, I was on the East Coast at the time. And, uh, you know, when I went out to the West Coast, I would see him and work with him, but we'd have dinner and a couple of drinks because we were friends. Mm -hmm. And he knew I was a writer. And he told me about this story, but very close to the vest. Like this was his best friend from college and they had um, played football together, varsity football. So this fellow was an all-state football player and, you know, uh, very, very reluctant to talk about his and his wife's experience with uh, UFOs and with uh, this alien abduction. He had held a very prominent job. He was a, he was in a project manager for the construction of malls, you know, shopping malls. Yeah. So he had a lot, large budgets and a lot of employees. And really, uh, credibility is very important. And the last thing he wanted to enter into his life was an alien abduction that that basically crippled him psychologically and, and physically for for years to come. It was incredible, you know, and I used to go camping and I use the word used to. OK, I used to go camping a lot, but not 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 quite like him, because I mean, when they went, they, they were out in the boonies, you know, mm -hmm, yes. I, you know, I, I would do the whole national park thing, but I mean, I, 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 I can envision, you know, you're out camping and then this stuff starts to happen, but you know, at the same time, like in his case, it was fascinating to watch at the mm -hmm. time it was starting to unfold. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, from his standpoint, I mean, they, they had no uh, intention or clue that uh, something like this would happen to them. Mm -hmm. Basically they had a couple of young uh, children uh, an infant and uh, a, uh, a three and a half year old and the wife, this would be Dawn Hess, um, you know, was very anxious to sort of get away and, you know, leave the kids behind and do adult things. Mm -hmm. From his standpoint, um, you know, he had been working really hard. The summer before, he'd gone to the Mojave Desert hunting with his uh, brother and with his father. They were avid hunters and, and, and outdoorsmen. And he missed a shot at a mule deer. So brothers being brothers and fathers being fathers, they gave him a relentless hard time for missing the shot. And him being a very competitive fellow said, well, next season, I'm going to come back and get that deer. So basically his, his motive was to, was to go hunting. And her motive was to get out of the house and, you know, go out to dinner and listen to some music and go dancing. So what they decided to do was compromise and do both. So they they left. Uh, the, the grandparents were watching the, the kids. And uh, 
they took off in their camper. They went to a place called Whiskey Pete, uh, which was on the way to the Mid Hills, Hills Campground, which was you know just outside the Mojave Desert. Mm-hmm. And uh, they did uh, go out to dinner, have some steaks, and did some dancing, listening to listen to some music. And uh, the idea was to go to the Mid Hills campsite, spend the night there, and then go in the early morning into the into the Mojave and, and do his hunting. Mm-hmm. When they got to the Mid Hills uh, campsite. Um, oddly, because it wasn't the time of year when it would be sold out or anything like that, but it was. And so what they decided to do, really what he decided to do, was to go camping where, where he's going to go hunting. So sure. in, you know, near the New York mountains and SEMA Dome, uh, really in, the, in a very isolated part of the desert. From Dawn's point of view, she felt uneasy right from the very beginning because she had heard about drug deals going down in these isolated parts of the desert, even murders, you know, where a drug deal would go bad and maybe bikers would argue and have a fight and somebody would get shot and be buried out there. So there were a lot of, you know, bad stories Uh to go along with the hunting, et cetera. So she was, uh, she was apprehensive, but they went anyway and uh, they camped and, uh, they uh, built a fire. They uh, had a couple of steaks and uh, were roasting marshmallows and the like. And that's pretty much when the uh, the event started. And the way you describe it in the book is that it looked it looked like there was some kind of craft up you know in the sky, but it had like a beam coming down, like they were looking for something, right? Yeah, um, actually, it, it it's a little more complicated than even that because. While they were roasting marshmallows and throwing bread pieces of bread to the uh, to the um, desert rats that were running around, scampering around, and sort of laughing at that, you know, them going after the food and all, he has this eerie feeling of being watched. So he looks over his right shoulder into the mountain range that's not far from them, mm-hmm. and he sees a UFO, maybe 30 feet in diameter, just peek out, almost like peek out, like somebody playing peekaboo. Peeks out, he sees it, and it sends a tremendous chill down his spine, as you can imagine, and then it goes back behind the mountain. So the last thing he wants to do is is tell his wife, who's already nervous about this, Mm -hmm. well, I just saw a UFO to the right of us, and so he, he, he buries it. When he was 12... He had had a UFO experience uh, at Lake Mojave, and um, he had been fishing with a friend. Both sets of parents, his friends and his parents, were, you know, camping out, partying, eating, drinking, having a good time, listening to music. The kids, the two boys, went out fishing. They saw a UFO that came closer and closer, a light that came closer and closer to the point where they felt like they were being followed, chased. They drop their fishing rods and run, go to the parents' campsite. And of course, kids being kids and parents being parents, we just saw a, a flying saucer, you know, and it chased us. And, you know, the parents say, oh, okay, great. You know, have a good time. Why don't you, you know, and, and they didn't really pay much attention to it, but he did. And mm-hmm. it registered deep in his, uh, in his psyche. And when he's in the desert this time with his wife and sees that, it all comes flashing back to him. 
doesn't say a word to Dawn because he doesn't want to make her any more nervous than she already is. Mm-hmm. And so he, he buries it, forgets it. They go on roasting their marshmallows and whatnot. Then they start stargazing. And, you know, in the desert at night, it's um, it's brilliant. You know, the stars are all there and the constellations. So he's identifying various constellations because, uh, you know, he, he again, he was an outdoorsman and those kinds of things mattered to him. And he goes, and you see that one over there? That's a double star. And so his wife goes, well, if that's a double star, this must be a triple star. Because there's this beaming light that's just shinier than all the stars and larger than all the stars. Of course, this just this just sends a tingle down his spine, given what he's just seen and what happened to him when he was 12. Mm-hmm. And he tries to explain it away. Well, maybe it's a, you know, a weather balloon or some kind of helicopter or army helicopter or something, though he, he's pretty sure it, it isn't. Right. The next thing they know, they look out and there are nine of these very shiny objects about 500 yards away over the mountain range, the New York mountain range, and they form the configuration of an M, of a large M. Wow. And they start blinking at one another. Now, there's no denying this is not a star. This is not anything like is supposed to be there. So he talks about, well, maybe it's like a military craft and maybe a military exercise of some kind. But then the nine become dozens and the dozens become hundreds. And they start falling to the ground, almost like like if it was a parachute or this, this billowing sort of floating down to the ground. When they hit the ground one at a time, they see these red eyes these piercing red eyes staring from the dead of night directly out at them. Hmm. And they start coming towards them. Hundreds of these, these things sort of charging towards them. So Steve being a hunter and terrified goes to the camper and gets uh, his shotgun an Ithaca shotgun and uh, a Browning rifle. And he's ready to do battle. Mm -hmm. They think that, and it's odd given the times now, but this was, you know, quite some time ago. He thinks it's a, a Russian invasion, mm-hmm. which, which we might be thinking these days if that happened. True. You know, it, it's really ironic, you know, how this how things shape up. But they think, you know, it's like the Russians, the Russians have invaded or invaded. Right. And um, he's ready to do battle or at least protect he and his wife as best he can. When uh, Dawn starts hearing um, like a telepathic message, you know, very clear, very uh, unmistakable, put the gun down or we will kill you. Get in the back of the camper and sit there. So she hears it first and and really between the two, she's certainly the more perceptive Mm -hmm. of the two. I mean, he has the experience, but it's, it's like a little bit after her. She is much, she's just, you know, getting to know them as I have. She's the more sensitive one. He's sort of the athletic guy. And she's sort of the, the mother with the, with the uh, maybe a, a touch of ESP. Anyway, um, she tells him, don't, don't fire the gun. Don't do that. You know, don't try to fight them. 
there's no way you're going to win. They want us to get in the back of the camper, put the gun down. And now he hears it, the same message. And it's repetitious and it's in their head. And almost robotically, they walk to the camper, they get in the back, they sit Indian style, him with the rifles over his, uh, over his lap. And uh, two, I want to say, I want to say beings, but they're more like monitors. And if you think about a, uh, a fire, uh, fire hydrant, mm -hmm. that kind of size, and they're sort of like um, electrical forces. And so they don't know it at first, but these are guarding them and preventing them from leaving the camper. Because when Steve tries to leave and move forward, they move forward to an equal degree. When he moves forward, he gets an a tremendous jolt of electricity that sends him, you know, reeling backwards. Mm -hmm. And now they realize they're not only in the camper, but they're trapped in the camper. They have windows on the side of the back, if you can imagine that kind of camper. There are windows, and um, these red eyes now have arrived by the dozens and are um, what they would describe as kind of gremlins, monkey-like creatures with like leather, leathery faces, these beaming red eyes, very malevolent, you know, malevolent is the way they describe them, and uh, frenetic, jumping on the hood of the car and the trees just everywhere around them, seeming to get more energy with the fear that they create. The more fear that they create, the more energy these things seem to thrive on it. And, um, and uh, they feel like they, they, they're... They're in hell or something. This is, something terrible has happened. Maybe they've died and gone to hell. They pinch each other. I mean, what do you see? You know, tell me, explain, what do you see? Mm -hmm. And literally they're pinching one another and describing in detail what they see when a huge UFO that caps the valley. And by that, I mean the size of a aircraft carrier. Caps the valley. There is no sound. There is no light except the light of the light from the uh, from the UFO, mm -hmm. which is which is awesome in size. And uh, a beam shoots down. Another sort of triangular um, device, almost craft, um, starts scouring the desert basin, and they call it a searcher because it seems to be searching for something. They smell like phosphorus, like uh, burning sulfur, this tremendous odor. And they think that a mining operation of some sort is going on. And this, this searcher is searching out maybe minerals, mm -hmm. something along those lines, because they have this smell of burning rubber, let's say, and this grinding vibration in the ground itself. Things start beaming up. There's a beam, they describe it about 100 feet in diameter that goes up to the larger craft and things start moving up in, into it. Cactus, animals, insects. It just starts taking things up. 
that time uh, they look around and uh, they're surrounded now by another type of creature, another type of alien. They call these the illuminated, illuminated figures. They are blinding white, blinding white, like a kind of light that you, can, you can't almost imagine, just incredibly white light and intense. They uh, have faces and limbs, uh, limbs they say like uh, maybe a four-year-old in terms of their torso, long, narrow uh, arms and legs, um, three fingers. And these, these they call the illuminated figures. And they look at these as sort of scientists because they're peering through the windows. They close the curtains, but it does absolutely no good because the, the curtains are just flimsy fabric and these things are, are just so bright. They mm -hmm. pierce, they pierce through, pierce through it. And um, they think of these as scientists because these nine figures seem to be studying everything about them. And uh, what happens next is, is that they start experimenting on Steve and Dawn while they're in the, uh, in the camper. Hmm. What year did this take place? It would be uh, 89, mm -hmm. 1989. Wow. I tell you, that made me stop camping. <laughs> I can <still laughs> tell you that. <laughs> well, you know that the interesting thing uh, from a number of points of view, I, when I hear them describe the mothership, as it were, mm -hmm. I think of what Fife Symington said about the Phoenix Lights. And when he was with a, a group of people, dozens, and they saw this huge craft that he described as the size of a football field, mm -hmm. slowly triangular in shape, slowly hovering above, not high, hovering above them and, and just cruising by, you know, very nonchalant almost. Um, and then I thought about them describing it, you know, like an aircraft carrier. Mm -hmm. so, so there are a couple times in UFO history where you, yeah. you hear about these massive craft that could never ever fly, you know, it, it can't can't be anything that's of this earth because nothing like that could ever fly. It's like saying a, a uh, again, an aircraft carrier is flying. I mean, it's, this is obviously impossible in our, in what we know of gravity. Absolutely, absolutely. So when you talk about tests and they're, and they're laying in the back of the trailer, yes. what type of tests are, are, are they doing? How do they know their tests? Yeah, um, so, one of the things that Dawn says later under hypnosis during when she's retrogressed is that she believes that uh, they don't have emotions like we do. Okay. And so this, these tests that go on for quite some time involve sort of a battery of tests that bring them through emotions. So for example, um, so for example, she had been molested as a child. And so she's forced to relive that whole experience again, but not just to think about it, to literally relive it and go wow. through the very same emotions as she did when she was, you know, uh, eight years old and, and this happened. So it's not like a memory. It's like being thrown back in time to that exact period and, and, and having to go through that same terror and that same humiliation, et cetera that she did when she was young. He um, was a football player, so he had had uh, 
you know, uh, his moments of exaltation, scoring a touchdown and, and whatnot. So he would feel that. Um, she would feel that, that her children were in jeopardy. She would was forced to sort of relive childbirth when one of her kids uh, had um, some rather serious problems with uh, his lung, a hole in the lung. And she has this vision of going through all that again, except when she gets to visit the child, it's mm -hmm. surrounded by aliens, it's surrounded by these uh, these illuminated figures. Mm -hmm. he, he is, since he's a hunter, is forced to feel like he's being hunted literally being hunted by hunters he's wounded and they and they stalk him and uh they they kill and gut him so from things that are ecstasy mm -hmm. things that are are moments of great pride for example she was in a uh, orchestra college orchestra and uh was very successful with that so it was a battery of emotions and it was almost like like since they don't understand emotions at all, they want to feel and see mm -hmm. and understand what terror is like, what humiliation is like, what triumph is like, what laughter is like, what loving is like, what making love is like. And so these are the uh, experiences, but um, of course the, the more traumatic ones are much more painful mm -hmm. than the others, particularly if you're a mother and you think that your kids are in dire jeopardy and, and that kind of thing. It, it really is gut-wrenching. Right. So, um, you know, from their standpoint, this was anything but pleasant. And as a matter of fact, when one would be going through one, the other wouldn't be going through the other. She'd be seeing this, their mate going through these convulsions and terror and whatnot. And um, they thought they were having heart attacks. Mm -hmm. I mean, they were just, they just thought they would explode. Their heart would explode. And uh, when that happened, a kind of uh, fog, a kind of mist would come into the camper and it would have a very soothing and calming effect. And they realized later that this would be sort of the equivalent of, I don't know, having a chimpanzee or a, a rabbit or something that you're experimenting on in a, a laboratory situation here and maybe a pharmaceutical company and you don't want the lab animal to die you want to keep the lab animal alive so that your experiments can continue mm -hmm. and so that's that's you know what they felt like mm -hmm. very dehumanized very um objectified very uh you know like insects under a microscope mm -hmm. it's just it, it's just incredible well i mean they're in the middle of nowhere so anything can happen when you're out in the middle of nowhere you know but that's incredible i mean that's one of the and honestly that you know when you listen to go them going through those tests you don't hear that very often in ufo encounters yeah you know, with alien encounters that's one of the first times i've ever heard of that going on i, I have a couple quotes from from the doctors that studied them and from them themselves maybe would help your your audience I had them um, examined at length by a Dr. Bernard Vitone, uh, a medical doctor and psychiatrist who is director of the National Center for Psychiatric Disorders in Washington, D.C. After two days of testing and interviews, he wrote, 
highly unusual traumatizing events outside the realm of normal human experiences. That was his conclusion. Dr. William Annixter uh, from Mountain Psychiatric Center in Asheville, North Carolina, after having retrogressed them said, the most compelling case of its kind I have ever encountered. When, um, when uh, the invasion first happened, I mentioned the, uh, the um, red-eyed creatures. This is what uh, Steve had to say. When we first saw them dropping from the sky, we thought it was some kind of military maneuver, maybe for Operation Desert Storm, but it was too massive even for that. I mean, there were thousands of them falling, then rushing toward us. So I kicked out the campfire, grabbed my gun, and ran into the back of the camper. Then we sat there, Indian style, waiting until they came, thousands of them, thousands of pairs of tiny red eyes glowing in the dark around us. With regard to the experiments that uh, I just described, this is what um, Dawn Hess had to say. She said, they wanted everything we had, everything, our minds, our bodies, even our souls, I think. It was like they drew it out of us with a syringe, every molecule, and it was painful. And I thought we were going to die or had already died and were being tortured in hell. Dawn Hess. Mm -hmm. Now, were they at any time ta uh, taken aboard the ship? Yeah, uh, th this is probably the most interesting. And I think if there's uh, something about this story that's um, incredibly unique, it's the only account that I know of where the individuals were told or can tell you why this happened to them, hmm. what it means. And... Uh, and even when the next encounter on a massive scale will take place. So it's incredibly revealing. What happened uh, after this, these experiments, and I mentioned them, uh, them uh, almost having heart attacks and, and just really thinking they'd gone insane. Um, very much towards the end, when they're on the verge of uh, madness, I guess, a kind of um, a kind of angelic presence comes swirling in the, in the sky. And again, there are other accounts that talk about this kind of thing, biblical for sure, but mm -hmm. even in UFO accounts, absolutely feminine for sure, um, angelic coming out of the sky, swirling robes, etc. Very comforting. They called her their comforter and the voice says don't worry you'll you'll be all right you will survive this this won't go on much longer you know be at peace etc and this particular being seemed to have command over the the gremlin like creatures and the illuminated figures and the rest and they they start to slowly withdraw they get very sleepy. Stephen Dawn then get very sleepy. They feel the uh, the camper being lifted, but not just um, the camper lifted, but their whole environment lifted up into the into the craft. They have uh, feelings and dreams later of battling Stephen, particular battling 
with uh, aliens trying to break loose, being separated from Dawn. And um, that's pretty much all they remember until the next morning. They find themselves outside the camper uh, with the uh, fire smothered and out and uh, sort of just totally disoriented, clothes sort of haphazardly put on. And, um, and that's, that's, you know, where it ends from that standpoint. Mm-hmm. They, they again think that something massive, massive has happened to some kind of invasion or, or whether it's a alien invasion or some military invasion, they're not sure, but they're convinced that it's a world altering event. They turn the radio on expecting to hear news about this and, Instead, they hear you know Randy Travis singing a country western song, right? And and they find it difficult to believe what what's going on. Why isn't everybody talking about this? Um, they go back to their um, their home in La Mirada, and uh, they're plagued by these terrible nightmares. Uh, I, I think it it must be a little like the, the guys that went on the moon, the astronauts. Mm-hmm. I understand a lot of them came back. And they just uh, are lethargic. It's like, what what do you do after you've been to the moon? Right. You know, so like work, he just loses all interest in his job. They have dysfunction in terms of sleep, a lot like maybe um, uh, uh, post-traumatic syndrome disorder, you know, where they're sexually dysfunctional, every sound in the house, like, you know, makes them crazy mm-hmm. um they they can't sleep they suffer from insomnia they can't eat and uh you know they have uh, some really terrible experiences while they're uh, back they try to tell their parents about it very reluctantly and you know this is maybe this has happened to you maybe not with ufos but just with something where you say to somebody well you know this happened and that happened and they say, well, I'm sure you think that happened. And, uh-huh. <laughs> and I think there probably is nothing that gets people more angry than somebody saying, well, I'm sure you think that happened. And I'm sure, you know, that you. And so that didn't go well. And uh, they figure if my own parents don't believe me or really believe me, they think it happened, but it was mis- a misunderstanding or something else, um, you know, I think we better just keep this to ourselves, which is what they did. But in the meantime, I can tell you, I'll just read a short section about a couple of the things that happened to them. Sure, sure, sure. So uh, you're giving me chills again. You know, here it is eight years later since I've read it. You're giving me chills again with this stuff. Well, here, here, this happens in their home, 2.53 a.m. Their son is named Tom Jr. And he's like four or so. And Zoe is, a, is pretty much an infant, maybe one or so. A scream rang out from the children's room where Tom Jr. and Zoe were sleeping. Dawn was the first to enter. She flicked on the light instinctively. Since the inception of their trip to the Mojave, she'd lived with the morbid fear that something horrible was, to happen, was going to happen to little Thomas. Now she stopped at the entrance of the room with her husband, watching in awe and horror as their child stood sound asleep in the center of the room, spinning like a top. 
you sons of bitches, Dawn wailed, running to him, then scooping him up in her arms. You think you can do anything you want, but you can't. Don't you dare touch our children. Leave my child alone. Already Steve was beside her. It's okay. It's all right now, he was saying as he guided them back toward the bed. Tom Jr., cradled in her arms, was only now beginning to awaken. Mommy, what's wrong? Nothing, dearest, nothing. Everything's going to be fine, she soothed, laying him back in his bed, her heart still hammering. Now you just go back to sleep. Everything is fine now. Dawn backed quietly away from him as his heavy eyelids dropped. She soon joined Steve, who stood watching from the doorway, then flicked the light off. But the moment she did, the boy leapt up suddenly in his bed. Don't turn the light off. What, but why, she asked, stunned. Because when you do, the little monsters come. She sighed. Thomas, there are no monsters. But there are, Mommy. There are, he insisted. They're short and ugly, and they have red eyes. Tom and Elise left the children's room that morning, horrified to think that they were no longer safe, even in the environs of their own home. Spooky stuff. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, and just um, uh, a horrible way to live. Yeah. They felt like they're watched all the time. Um, even, even like, for example, uh, I won't read it, but I'll, I'll describe it. So the last thing I suppose on anyone's mind during this is making love. Mm-hmm. So they're just... This is just not on their radar screen. Nevertheless, um, they do, almost robotically. And they feel like they're being watched. And while they're making love, they see these these beings around the bed, surrounding them, watching. Whoa. Yeah. So... Uh, so th- there's, there's just uh, those kinds of things. Um, uh, one time, and I have some really good descriptions of the beings. I think I think I can find it pretty easily. I hope. Oh, well, you also one. talked about too, and this is this is yeah. what made me question ghost hunting. Yes, mm-hmm. because you also talked about their ability to just walk through walls and stuff. Exactly, that's just it what I was thinking. Read. I mean, maybe you know, maybe as a ghost hunter, we're not really hunting ghosts. We're in fact, we think we're hunting ghosts, but in reality, these EVPs were getting the stuff for aliens. You know, it, it seems to me, I mean, this is a really, this is one of those things where people say, well, what does it mean? You know, they ask me, what does it mean? I'm not sure. I don't know what it means. But I do know this, that somehow or another, there seems to be a curtain between this world and another one, and maybe many other ones, but at least another one. Mm-hmm. And very occasionally, certain people, maybe clairvoyance, something like that get a peek, uh, a peek on the other side of that curtain. Mm-hmm. And for them, it seems to me like the curtain was lifted for a short period of time. And these beings could um, could uh, permeate that curtain at will, at will. And um, whether that's a ghost or whether that's a kind of world uh, beings in a world that that just maybe aren't really physical mm-hmm. maybe have evolved beyond the physical mm-hmm. so here's the, here's another encounter and this is what really led them to 
agree to talk to me. Okay. They were just so beside themselves that they that they had to do something. And I said, I'll, I'll, I will get you examined by the best doctors in, in the country, you know, and, and I did. So this is June 12, 1990, 3.05 a.m. It was four weeks later in the dead of early morning that the dreams recurred with an intensity unlike any of the others. In his, Steve saw himself back in the camper, trapped and screaming while the illuminated creatures encircled him. He was screaming, but there was no sound. And then he saw a flashing image. It was of a long, narrow tunnel with lights running along the sides. But then it was gone again. And then he saw a being who was all white, the color of the tunnel lights. Again, he saw a flashing image, and it was of several beings like that. They were trying to restrain him. Then the vision was gone, and only the first figure remained. The being is four feet tall. He wears a white luminous uniform with an upturned arrow on the chest. He has no facial features, no mouth or lips, only slits. He passes directly through the wall. He stands behind the headboard. He stays there, passes his three long fingers over Dawn's face, over and over. Steve can only see the hand. He opens his eyes and directly above him is the face of the white being. You're dreaming, he hears the voice say. Then he looks to Dawn's face and sees the burn marks its fingers have left. Hey, wait a minute, Tom, uh, Steve says aloud. This is no dream. He turns to Dawn and gasps. He was awake. He knew he was awake, and Dawn had the burn marks all over her face. Dawn's eyes opened. The expression on Steve's face scared her. What? What is it? Go to the mirror, he urged her. Go to the mirror now. Dawn walked to the wall mirror above the chiffonier. My God, what is this? She screamed. Steve, Steve, what have they done? They've burned my face. That's all right, he said, holding her close to him. It's going to be okay. He, he eased away from her. Now you just stay here, sweetheart, while I get a camera. Steve came back breathless with a Polaroid in hand. Dawn was horrified, hysterically, as, as he snapped photos one after another, still trying to calm her and himself as he clicked away. Just take it easy. Everything's going to be okay. Flash. He sucked for air. That was him. Flash. In the tunnel with lights. Flash. He and three others are who I was struggling with. Flash. That night in the desert. Steve took five photos of the burn marks on Dawn's face that morning. When developed, they showed the marks, uh, they showed the marks resembled patterns and symbols. A thunderbolt on her right and on her left, the imprint of three distended fingers wrapped around Dawn's face from behind. Wow. Later that morning, Steve awoke to the sound of Dawn sobbing hysterically as, he, as she stood before their full-length bedroom mirror observing the burn marks on her face. Neither had any recollection what had occurred hours earlier. So he, like Dawn, was shocked to discover them. Look at what they've done to me, she wailed. Look at what they've done to my face. Steve walked to her. He touched her right and then her left cheek, studying the peculiar marking so clear yet so inexplicable. And here she raved, waving the five photos in his face. Look at these. Steve flipped through the photos. Polaroids. He shook his head incomprehensibly. Did I take them? You must have, she hissed. You must have taken them this morning. But look, the photos are blackened, and they made us forget again. Don't you see what they're doing? Baby, I'm sorry, he whispered, holding. Does it hurt? Should I call a doctor? 
No, she bellowed. I don't want any more anyone to see me like this. Do you understand? Somberly, he nodded, watched as his young wife felt the side of her face with her fingertips. So, yeah. <laughs> so by the time my friend, his name was Paul Moran, mm -hmm. told me about this, he realized that his friends were in desperate trouble. On the one hand, they were really reluctant to come forward because of his job, because of just everything. And they thought people would just think that they were crazy. And, um, and he's suffering with these nightmares, with all the things I've just described, absolute terror. And I, I think when people get to that stage, they just want to be left alone. They just want to go into a cave somewhere and, and die. <laughs> and um, so they were at the end of their rope and reluctantly they agreed to see me. And to be honest with you, I, I didn't have a great interest in this story because mm -hmm. all I knew was an alien abduction story. And I said, well, yeah, it's really not the kind of thing as I write about. I was writing spy novels and, and uh, you know, some uh, political kind of thrillers and uh, some nonfiction. And uh, it just wasn't really what I wanted to do, but he was so adamant about it. I said, look, you're, you're my friend. You say this is uh, something I should see. Let me meet them. And when I did, I realized not just by the story, but just because they were so um, credible, so believable, and so obviously shaken up by this. I mean, I mean, why would you lie about something like this? Right. So right. we did have a lie detector test done, and uh, I told you about the retrogressive hypnosis and the um, the analysis by a uh, by a highly qualified uh, psychiatrist. And then uh, they agreed to be uh, retrogressed. And that's when some of the real revelations came out. Now, were they abducted, out, taken out of their house at all? Um, not not that they were aware of or I was aware. They right. would wake up with no memory of these things. You know, they'd right. have right. nightmares and not really. So really what happened, the retrogressive hypnosis mm -hmm. brings them back to these events. And they have uh, a great recall after that. Did they, uh, you know, during the retrogressive e events, were yes. they able to describe what was done to them when they were aboard the ship? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, here, I, th I think maybe there's some, a couple of things I'll, I'll read. They're almost like transcripts, you know. Yeah, you don't want to give it all away because we want people to read the book, of course. But yeah, they will. But uh, I think I'm going to read the book again too. I almost did over the weekend, and I thought, no, I want to sleep. Thank you very much. <laughs> So let me just see. Sure. Um, this is this I just thought was really incredible, and no, I, I'm not giving too much away. Believe me, but right. uh, because there's just so much here. But so Dr. Annixter, that's the retrogressive hypnotist, um, turned in the seat toward Dawn, who sat with her body lax. She's hypnotized in deep, uh, deep trance, head tilted to one side, lying on her right shoulder. Dawn. Do you have any idea what these beings want or why they're here? It was strange watching as Dawn sprang up in her chair, suddenly animated and alert. Her voice, rather than soft and emotional, took on a new cadence, which was clipped and direct, quite unlike her. Quote, they want to make contact with the population. Steve and I are specimens, imperfect like the human race. When we're ready to communicate with them face to face, then possibly the world will be too. 
Her actions, such as edging forward in her chair at the moment, seemed mechanical, as did her voice as she continued. They have to study our reactions to know how to approach us. They don't have emotions like ours, so they need us to teach them. They need to understand humans. Do you have a sense as to who they are and where they come from? The doctor repeated, quote, there are five galaxies. Theirs is the next closest. In order for all five galaxies to work together one day, they have to start, and they're starting with us, so we'll be united galaxies. What else do you know? Annexer, the doctor, asked, feeling as if he was in contact with someone other than Dawn. I know where the universe ends, she said, rattling the words off in staccato fashion like rounds from a machine gun. Is that something you can put into words? Now there was no denying something incredible was happening. Quote, our universe ends where theirs begins. Our universe ends when all its matter stops mattering to us and starts mattering to them. Everyone in the room looked to one another stunned at what they heard and what they were seeing. For now, sitting on the edge of the out-of-date cushioned armchair sat Dawn Hess, her body rigid and vibrating with newfound energy. Wow. You know, that uh, makes me wonder, you know, like that TV show V, not the first part V, the, the, the more recent version of it. Because what they were doing was they were harvesting humans to pull their emotions out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that's uh, that's the, the idea. And um, the idea I asked, I got a chance to, interview while she was uh, hypnotized and also Steve. Mm -hmm. And uh, that was really incredible. And uh, I said, so when, when is this contact going to happen? Mm -hmm. And uh, she said, I don't know. So I said, well, when do you believe it will happen? She goes, I don't know. I said, will it happen in my lifetime? And she goes, how long will you live? So I said, will it happen in my children's lifetime? She said, it will happen in your children's lifetime. Hmm. And I take that very um, literally. Right. I think, right. I think that if you look at the history of, um, of these encounters, going back to, I think it was 49, when in the Himalayas, they took these pictures and they were in Look Magazine, of these fuzzy sort of, you know, these sort of, Saucers, as he mm -hmm. described them, um, nine, I guess it was nine uh, that were flying over the Himalayas. And he was in his his, uh, his small craft, his beach craft and snap photos. Um, th these were these grainy sort of photographs. Then you get much more clear photographs from all over the world, Belgium, Germany, uh, Gulf Breeze, Florida, all over the world much clearer photographs. Then in the 60s, you get Betty and Barney Hill. Mm -hmm. So from a nebulous sort of thing to a clear sort of thing to a, an alien abduction with two credible people that can recount exactly what happened to them, the terror, mm -hmm. etc. Then you get something like the Phoenix Lights, where the governor, former governor, well, the governor at the time of uh, Arizona actually sees these and describes them. Now here he is, a um, uh, a pilot, a mm -hmm. former fighter jet pilot in Vietnam, 
uh, and a, and an enthusiast, an aircraft enthusiast that sees this and says, "I've I've never seen anything like this. I will never see anything like this. Nothing like this exists on the earth." Then you hear Ronald Reagan has had UFO experiences, very specific. Jimmy mm -hmm. Carter had UFO experience to the point where he actually reported them. And um, it seems to me that, and then you have a story like this. Mm -hmm. It seems to me that there's a desensitization going on mm -hmm. and that we're moving closer and closer towards a major encounter. And then by the way, let's even talk about the Pentagon. Sure. Releasing these, these footage from fighter pilots. I mean, mm -hmm. whoever thought the Pentagon would ever do that. And there must be a reason. And the reason must be, I think, that it's too big to just put under wraps. Mm -hmm. You can't have millions and millions of people believing this, seeing this, talking about it, photographing it, etc. And uh, including policemen, mm -hmm. pilots, uh, commercial pilots, jet fighter pilots. I mean, at some point in time, reality is reality. And I just think that that's exactly right. I'm 70, and uh, I, f I figure if I live to be 100, that would be great. But I have a couple of kids that will outlast me by another, another 50 years, probably. And I'm convinced that she's exactly right. I think in their lifetime, there will be a major communion between, um, uh, between an alien race or several alien races and the human beings on earth. Well, you know, I've talked to people that have been abducted and had seen, and have seen the hybrid program. And I know one of the people said, well, you know, some of those hybrids, they, they've come so far with them that you wouldn't even notice the difference between us and them. And, and, and this is how they see this, this awakening going is that they're, they're slowly in, incorporating into our neighborhoods and stuff. Mm -hmm. And so, mm -hmm. so by the time, this awakening comes, they're going to be your neighbor, your best friends with across the street comes over and says, hello, my, you know, take I me to your surprise. <laughs> <laughs> you know, yeah. so that that's maybe what they're doing is that by the time, like, like our kids, our kids are at a certain age, it'll just be a natural thing because they'll realize yeah. hey, my, my neighbor across the street is an alien. It's no big deal. It's blah, blah, blah. You know, and, 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 it's just, it's just we're side by side. It's like any other race. Yeah, but you know the, the interesting thing is too. Now you would think, or I would think anyway, going back a number of years, that if the Pentagon made these statements, released these this footage, and you know it's described, there's no scent, no no uh, obvious scent of propulsion, no uh, mm -hmm. plumes, no you know, the, uh, doing uh, hypersonic speeds, etc. Almost any other time, you would think that's all people would be talking about. Right. But they released it at the height of COVID, which really drowned out everything else, I think. And I think that was on purpose. But what is stunning to me is here's the Pentagon releasing fighter pilot footage of alien spacecraft. They know it's not Chinese. They know it's not Russian. They know it's not ours. But what's left? So it's alien craft. And, and nobody blinks. Right. Th that amazes me. It is and amazing. It tells you how far we've come in terms of this desensitization, I think. And Athena says they're not benign. 
Athena, I agree with you, but I also think that, like in any society, even their society, mm -hmm. there's good people and there's bad people. And, and, and you know, the bad ones are, are these dudes with the red eyes, obviously, and the reptiles or whatever. But then there is that there are good ones, you know. Yeah. Well, look at, look at the angelic presence. Yeah. Yeah. That's the thing. Yeah. You know, so yeah, it's just like our society. There's good and bad, you know, and sometimes the bad's going to take over more. Sometimes, you know, it just depends how the balance of power goes with it. Yeah. But it is scary. I mean, for us, maybe that's why they're not going to visit our generation because we're still scared of this stuff. You know, we're still on the edge. We, I mean, we grew up with parents that were in World War II. Yes. And so our beliefs are a lot like our parents from World War II. But see, the, our kids now, they're so far removed from that that they have that they have more open minds about stuff. Yeah, I, I think I think that's true. Um, and, and we'll just see how all, all of that goes. I, I'm, I'm not sure how it will go. But I would say this. I'm not convinced that it's about evil. Because if you look at it from or try to look at it from their point of view, so they've discovered this sort of race of people. You know, they're not telepathic. They're sort of primitive, and um, and they're interesting. Right. They don't really think of things in terms of human or not human. Mm -hmm. They look at us as creatures, the way we might look at um, I don't know a, a mouse or right. Or, right. And so. They're curious. So what, what do our scientists do to other species? They dissect them. Mm -hmm. They study them. They dissect yeah. them. And it isn't yeah. that we're evil. It's that we're curious about this, this form of life. Right. Right. And so I think that's more like it. I, I don't think that necessarily it's, uh, it's evil. I think, I think literally these are kind of scientists that in a clinical way, studied these these individuals you know and they have no great remorse because they don't really think of things in terms of well this is a human being they don't look at it that way we look at it that way because we are human beings and then when you look at history like you say i mean obviously they were coming as far back as the egyptians mm -hmm. but the but the advancements in technology weren't there see yeah. so now they're waiting for us to cut you know to kind of catch up somewhat to their technology too so we have a better understanding yeah. You know, the, the, the most interesting thing I know about this topic is, um, you know, Francis Crick, who's the fellow that discovered DNA. Yes. This, this is the, the, the wildest, but the truest theory I've ever heard. So he didn't believe it doesn't believe in evolution. I don't believe in evolution either. He says that the human brain is the fellow that discovered the DNA helix. They won the Nobel Prize for Science in, I think, 56. Anyway, um, he wrote a book called Life. And in that book, he says that um, it, it, it is not plausible, not possible, that human beings have evolved, let's say, from some bacteria in a swamp to where we are today in the time allotted. Mm -hmm. Evolution just doesn't account for it. it. It doesn't happen fast enough to create a human brain, something as complex as a human brain from a, a bacteria right. or an amoeba in a swamp. Impossible. He said, impossible. And this is a guy that would have more than a nodding acquaintance with, with evolution, real evolution, how things come to be. He said that, that it's as likely, evolution is as likely as a tornado going through a junkyard and leaving behind a 757 jet 
fully assembled that takes off and flies to Europe. That's how unlikely the, the coincidence of evolution is. Uh-huh. His, his idea, which makes a lot more sense to me, is called direct, directed transpermia. He thinks that there is a civilization somewhere, maybe in the universe, maybe another universe, that at some point in time took their DNA and sent it throughout the universe uh-huh. in the form of asteroids and, uh, and meteors. Uh-huh. And that when they came into the atmosphere of Earth, for example, the radiation would, would um, uh, bring them back to life, bring okay. the DNA, activate the DNA, which then perhaps would go into a swamp, etc. But the start, the DNA was already there, mm-hmm. and there was a huge jump in terms of evolution that was directed and intelligently sent throughout the universe sure. with the idea of saying, well, somewhere or another, this will catch on. So that really, in his opinion, we are the sons and daughters of, of an alien race. We're the aliens. That makes a lot of sense. A lot it makes of sense. a lot of sense to me. It really it truly does. Yeah, it does. I have one more question for you about the book too. Mm-hmm. Are, uh, do you know if they're still having experiences? Um, I, I would be amazed if the answer was no to that. Yeah. Yeah. They. Um, I don't want to get too much into their personal lives because it's just sure, it's sure, not really sure. fair. But Absolutely. I will say this: they became very religious. They moved to uh, Utah in the Salt Lake City area, they became devout Mormons. Uh-huh. And um, uh, their bishop said this had a lot to do with demonic possession. And and in a way, if you think about the angelic presence, if you think about right. the demonic sort of uh, creatures, um, there's certainly a, a room for a theological explanation to this. Uh-huh. And as Absolutely. a matter of fact, I end my, my book with a quote by Norman Mailer, which I think really is so interesting. He says, the devil might be a presence from another universe. Uh We might be fighting an implacable enemy out there. And the devil might be the agent of that implacable enemy with God as the tired general fighting that war with his own agents of hope. Isn't that an interesting twist on religion? That is. And, uh, I have a feeling that, that that has something to do with the truth, what Mailer said. Absolutely. Ron, I want to thank you so much. I have been wanting to interview you for a long time, and I'm so glad I found you because, like I said, guys, if you're going to buy a book on abduction, this is the one to get because you don't candy code anything. And, yeah, like I said, I would have read it this weekend, but I had to sleep. <laughs> you Charlotte, I, I have a new book coming out. Uh, in September, and it's. Uh, do you have a moment? Do we have a moment? Oh, absolutely. Go for okay. it. Okay. Yeah, it, it'll come out in September. But let me tell you a quick and an interesting story. Sure. I was a student at Georgetown University in uh, 1972, which shows you how old I really am. But uh, <laughs> but they were filming The Exorcist, so I was a writer even back then and had my first novel, and I ran around and caught up with William Peter Blatty, the author of The Exorcist, who agreed after me pleading for a long time Mm -hmm. to read my my novel. 
So we became friends after that. And um, he said, you know, keep writing. I can't help you with this book. It's too, you know, it's not commercial enough, but I want to help you. Uh, you have the brains and the, the will to be a fine writer. And I said, mm -hmm. oh, that's great. So we kept in touch and he said, I have a story I was going to write, uh, but I've decided to do something else. Let me give you the story. It happened in 1898 in Boston and went on till 1903. And there was a woman, a Radcliffe student who was 21 years of age, who suffered all of the symptoms of demonic possession and was studied by William James, the famous William James, who was a, a um, um, who was a professor of abnormal psychology at Harvard University Medical School, Dr. Morton Prince, Harvard Medical School, uh, and uh, uh, contemporary of Sigmund Freud, uh -huh. uh, Richard Hogson, president of the Psychiatric Society of uh, Boston, uh, and um, the medium, Lenora Piper. And so they formed a team of five to study this woman and the doctor to try to cure. And they went through everything, including an exorcism. And um, it's totally documented. And it's got to be the most compelling story of its kind, maybe ever written. It's uh, totally documented, all the doctor's notes, photographs, and um, it's just the most, it, it, I call it a, 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 a book, a, a true story of science, murder, and demonic possession. Wow. Yeah. I'm going to have to read that. And after, totally you get it done, after you get it done, I want to have you want to talk to you about it. I, I'd love to, I'd love to come back, Charlotte. That'd be great. Oh my gosh. If it's anything like the Mojave incident, I'm in. I'll tell you. <laughs> like wow. I promise you'll like it. All right. Well, I want to thank you. And where can people find you, sir? Well, I have a, um, a website. It's just easy, ronfelbert.com. Okay. And, um, you know, my, my books, uh, the Mojave incident in particular, is on Amazon and, you know, Barnes and Noble. You can order it through any bookstore, the Mojave incident. Thank you very much, Ron. I really appreciate it. So it was a lot of fun, Charlotte. I'd love to have you back on. All right, sir. Take care. Have a good evening. Okay, bye-bye. Okay, bye-bye. Wow, that's all I can say. And I can tell you, I mean, I don't usually personally uh, talk about people's books like this, but this is this is a big wow. Okay, if you guys are going to read something that, that, that you see on this show, this is the one to read, this Mojave Incident. I want to thank Ron again for coming on, and thank you guys for coming to watch and comment in the chat room. Uh, tomorrow, we're going to be on at 5.30 p.m. We're going to be on an hour early because the guest is going to be coming to us from Mexico City. His name is Marco Vidato, and we're going to be talking about Atlantis. He's done a lot of study on Atlantis and ancient civilizations, and he's got some interesting theories that, uh, that, that, that uh, we should possibly hear. I'm going to check, take a look and see your guys' comments real quick. There we go. Okay. I'm a looking. Okay. Um, hang on a second. You're right, Athena. I forgot to ask him when, when it was going to be published. My bad. Um, anyway, so he's going to be on tomorrow talking about Atlantis and ancient civilizations, but that's going to be 5.30 p.m. Pacific. So make a note of that. Okay. Uh, and uh, before I close off, I'll give you the information for the web for um, Rod's website and, well, obviously Amazon for the Mojave Incident. Uh, if you like the show, oh, I'm getting ahead of myself. 
visit our website, CaliforniaHauntsRadio.com. Visit CaliforniaHaunts.org. That's for our paranormal group. But uh, CaliforniaHauntsRadio.com has all the videos set up that we've done, uh, more than 200, okay? And if you want to get involved with our YouTube page, you could do that. Sometimes it's hard to find us. Google California Haunts on YouTube. It should come up. If not, go to the website, CaliforniaHauntsRadio.com. Click on a video there that'll take you to the YouTube page so you can subscribe from there. Again, we're looking for subscribers. So if you like the show, share it with five people. If you despise the show, share me with like five or six of your enemies. I'm good. It's all good. I like haters too. It's all good. Because that would be really great because we are looking for subscribers. If you feel the need that to hear us uh, as a podcast, we're at Spotify. We're at Apple. We're at Google. We're on all the major podcast networks. You can check us out. iHeartRadio, TuneIn, everything. We're everywhere. You can't, you can't get rid of us, right? And again, we're a nonprofit organization. So if you find it in your hearts to donate a little bit to help us keep the show on the air and help me keep bringing guests, I'm a journalist. I'm a photographer. This is what I do. So, you know, um, I love to do this. I love talking to these guys. I, I love bringing guests on. And as you know, we don't always talk about paranormal. We talk about elder abuse. We talk about murders. We talk about all this other stuff. So, you know, even the Coca-Cola guy, right? He's going to be on Thursday. We talk about Coca-Cola. So, I mean, it's a variety of topics. And there's, a, there's something for everybody. If you go to our YouTube page, there's a, little, there's a little something for everybody. Okay? So that would be, you know, if you if you could help me, you know, afford all this good stuff, like the headphones, like which Jennifer Martin helped with, you know, and the mic, the computer, and blah, 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 and all the, the stream yard service, my internet, paypal.me at California Haunts. Or if you're uncomfortable with PayPal, Venmo, and just then type in California Haunts. You do it from there. But again, I want to thank everybody for coming. I really appreciate you guys following us. I'm really proud to say that our downloads for the podcast have doubled. I'm not going to say what they are because I don't want to jinx it. But this month, they doubled. And it's incredible to watch because we are gaining momentum. And I'm real excited. So I want to I want to do a shout out to all of our listeners around the world that have downloaded our show and listened to it. I really appreciate you doing that. It makes me feel good. Okay. So tomorrow, Marco Vidato, Atlantis and Ancient Civilizations, 5.30 p.m. Pacific. And right now, I see, did I forget everything? Nope, I'm good. I'm going to show you how to get a hold of, of Ron. And how to get the book. So we got a website at ronfilber.com. And this is a must read. The Mojave Incident. Fantastic book. It'll keep you up at night. I promise. In fact, we may see if I can make it and available at amazon.com. Maybe this will be the next book in line to read for our Sunday reading. We'll see. Anyway, thank you, Marisa, Jerry, Susan, Athena, Pamela, and everybody else. That, oh, Joseph, too. I saw Joseph in there. And everybody else that listened tonight, I want to thank you all for listening, and I hope to see you tomorrow. Okay? So have a good night. Enjoy. Pleasant dreams. <laughs>